Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, today I'm really excited to give you an interview that I did with Kayla Troutwine. Now, many of you will actually know Kayla, but if you don't, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her now, uh, but it was such a pleasure to have this conversation. So, Kayla Troutwine is a coach and author who specializes in helping high achievers to transform their mindsets to be positive, uh, to be more successful at their goals, and most importantly, to create the happiness that they deserve. So for most of her life, Kayla experienced debilitating anxiety, sadness, uncontrollable negative thoughts, anger, pessimism, and hopelessness. Uh, But over the course of six years, uh, through practicing Stoic philosophy, see it's a long-term game, uh, she was practicing Stoic philosophy and she managed to develop methods to change her thoughts and feelings, and she completely transformed herself. Uh, so today, Kayla lives in a near sta- sorry near constant state of inner peace, happiness, optimism, uh, freedom from negativity, and quietness of mind. So drawing from her experience, uh, she's actually created an eight-week program called the Eight Universal Laws of Peace and Happiness, and has helped others to experience similar transformations. So I'm really excited to give you this interview because seriously, we had such a great time talking and she's such a lovely person and I know you're going to get a lot of value out of this and make sure you head to all of the links in the show notes where you can go check out everything that she's up to and all of her programs on offer. So uh, without any further ado, I present to you Kayla Troutwine. Okay, so we are here with the one and only Kayla Troutwine. And uh, Kayla, I'm very, very excited to have you on the show. Uh, you know, you kind of reached out and um, told me a little bit about what you do. And, uh, and, and I just want to give you the opportunity to kind of speak to the audience, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and, uh, and what you do. Sure. Before I do that, I just want to thank you, Simon, for this opportunity. And obviously, all the work that you do to keep stoicism alive for those of us who know about it and then introducing all those who didn't know about it before, I know that it's a lot of work to run a podcast. Of and course. Yeah. So thank you. On well, thank you so that. much. Yeah, of course. So for most of my life, I experienced really terrible anxiety, depression, anger, constant 24 seven negative thoughts that just poured into my head. And so, you know, I didn't even think I had control over my thoughts and emotions. And when I was 20, I took my first philosophy class and I was introduced to stoicism and that's kind of how I got interested in it because telling someone who feels like they don't have control over their thoughts and emotions that they actually can control them was kind of unheard of for me. And so, but it gave me hope that maybe change was possible. And so Mm. from that point on, I kind of went on the saga and started devouring stoic texts and modern resources on it and creating my own exercises to help change the way that I responded to my circumstances and leading to today, I've actually created a coaching program, an eight week program where I help people do the same, help people create happiness and find clarity and transform negative mindsets in order to change the way that we respond to all the things that we can't control in life. Mm. Yeah, I love it. And, and, you know, I've, I've taken a look at your website and everything as well. It's just you know, absolutely beautiful layout and you really do 
uh, you know, you've got some great testimonials there from people as well who have got great results out of, out of your program. Um, now I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into your own personal journey. So can you take us through like, you know, that first introduction to stoicism and then uh, how you kind of ran with it, with it from there and um, your process uh, getting rid of those kind of really negative thought patterns. And um, I don't know, you might call it like a nihilistic view on life. Like how, how did yeah. you get through that? That's the perfect way to describe it. I, so up until age 20, I kind of lived in this chaotic reality where my emotions were so out of my control and I looked around at everyone else at my friends and I saw that they were happy and they were enjoying life and so I actually held the belief that some people were born with the ability to be happy and then other people like me were just born miserable and that was that and I was just going to struggle through life and so like you said it's a very nihilistic way to view life it was a very sad way it makes me sad to think back on that because I think a lot of people feel like that um but yeah, so randomly, I decided to take a philosophy class as an art elective, and that mm. changed my life forever. I often wonder what would have happened if I never took that class. But uh, so I actually took two classes. The first one was Aristotle 101. So <laughs> as you can guess, mm. it was on Aristotle. But that was really my first introduction to realizing that instead of just accepting my thoughts and feelings as absolute reality, that I could question them and I could compare them to wisdom that I was learning and say, okay, if my situation doesn't match up with this, then maybe the world isn't against me. Maybe it's not everyone else that's awful and everything's doom and gloom, but maybe it's the way that I'm perceiving things. Hmm. And so that was my first little glimpse into that. And then I loved the class so much that I took the subsequent course by the professor and that was Hellenistic philosophy. So that's where Stoicism, Epicureanism, and Cynicism were introduced. And yeah, I love it. Yeah. Sorry, go Oh, no, it's okay. So I think the, the main thing that, you know, made stoicism stand out among all those philosophies was the whole idea of emotional control because I didn't have control. And so that just, again, gave me a glimmer of hope that change was possible. Mm. Yeah, I love it. And, and going through that, like how long did it take you to kind of rid yourself of, of those kind of negative thought patterns that were really, you know, ailing you? It took about six years. Yeah. Because I, I kid you not, it's, I wish I could make a movie of, or some way to describe how I felt because like, I'll give you a silly example of something I used to get really angry about. It was like an automatic rage. And again, it's embarrassing to talk about this, but um, when I, I would go jogging in the mornings and if I would wave good morning to someone and they didn't respond, I became livid. And I think, <laughs> dare they not say hello to me? That's so rude. And all these negative thoughts and these beliefs would pour into my mind. And so I actually, through that process, I developed a methodology of questioning my beliefs and then choosing a different response. And so with that particular example, you know, I would acknowledge that I was feeling anger because this person didn't say hello to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then my underlying belief was that they were rude and disrespectful and all of that. But then I didn't want to be angry. So I said, okay, what wisdom would help me change my response to be more positive? And at first I started telling myself stories like, oh, maybe they didn't see you. Maybe that's why they didn't wave back to you. But that's, I was kind of lying to myself. The truth of it was, I don't have a right to control whether someone wants to say hi to me or not, mm. right? I don't want to be controlled by someone else. I want to have the freedom to do what I want. So by getting angry when someone doesn't conform to my ideal of right behavior, quote unquote, right behavior, that's a form of me trying to control them. And so I used the dichotomy of control to calm myself down. And I continued doing that 
every time I experienced anger until one day I realized that I couldn't remember the last time I felt anger. It had probably been about 30 days. And that's when I knew that that methodology was working. And so I started tackling everything, whether it was my tendency to gossip about other people or complain about things, all these things that caused me to experience my negative thoughts and emotions. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And that really speaks to our kind of uh, really strange habit as human beings of just making up stories constantly, right? And when you get into these habits, essentially what it is, you know, I've been thinking about this lately. It's like, you know, what is an over-emotional person? We talk about the over-emotional person a lot in, in society. Uh, somebody who's always, you know, always, you might say, to, to use a buzzword, always triggered by something, always angry about something, always taking offense to something. Um, you know, one kind of clear definition that you might be able to, uh, to put on an over-emotional kind of state is somebody who actually believes the stories that their mind tells them constantly. And if you actually believe the stories that your mind tells you, because your mind will, st- will tell you stories, and I'm sure your mind still, t- still tells you stories from time to time, you just have a better um, way of dealing with it, right? Um, but, but, you know, that, that's really what we're trying to fix here. We're trying to fix that, I guess, that bridge between the story that our mind tells us and the reaction that we have to that story. And, and also kind of changing the story from the get-go and trying to understand that not everybody is out to get us and not everybody is trying to hurt us. Um, And also you bring up a really important point, which is to not try and control the other person because I mean, even Seneca said that, you know, all anger springs from weakness and, and really in, in, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's kind of a weak position to always be trying to control at least in your mind, what everybody else is doing because it just won't happen. And, and, and it kind of, it can show a very negative outlook of, of the world and, and of, of people, right? That you think that you actually even have the right to control what other people do and, and how they act around you. Um, yeah. but, but can you kind of speak to that about the, the, how, how important it is to kind of change those stories or at least stop believing them, uh, the ones that your mind tells you? I love that you called it making up stories because that's the same terminology I use when I teach people non-judgment. Yeah. But I I teach them to practice neutrality by making up a new story. So Mm. I actually play a game in my coaching where I give my clients someone's behavior and then I take their initial response to it. So for example, you know, someone who makes $50 million a year but doesn't give a dime to charity is, and usually the response is selfish. Yeah. Right. And then so we go through a couple examples and then we practice neutrality towards it. Mm-hmm. And so I have them make up a story about it and then I have them bring it back to themselves. So, you know, on the surface, you may think that's selfish, but they have a right to do what they want with their own money. Yeah. Right? We're not trying to control how people spend their money. Maybe instead of giving to charity, maybe they give it away to their children. We have no idea. And so everything that I do in my program is about giving us more options of how to mm. respond beyond that initial story that we tell ourselves because there's always so much more to the story. And when you get people's minds turning on that, it helps them learn to practice neutrality by realizing again that, you know, this person isn't necessarily out to get me or maybe this person isn't rude or a jerk, right? What is, what is rude? What is a jerk? I've yeah. gotten to the point where I'm so neutral and I think I'm in a very small minority of people that I don't judge anything. I don't, when I see someone's mm. behaviors, I don't draw any conclusion from it. It's just, 
it doesn't even cross my mind. I don't even make up any type of story about it anymore because I've just internalized it to mm-hmm. the point where there's no place for judgments because when we judge other people, that's when we think everyone else is judging us. And that's why mm. we walk on eggshells worried. You know, if I don't text my friend back right away, she's going to think I'm rude. It's like, well, do you get mad when other people don't text you back right away? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's why, that's why you think other people are judging you is because you're holding those judgments. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, I think, I think if people were just reading this interview and not actually listening here, they, they might think, oh gosh, like what a, what a boring way to live life, right? Like, like just to completely be neutral all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of like living like a dry piece of toast, right? As, as the saying goes, but um, can, can you speak to how this isn't actually something that necessarily has to make you just a dry, boring person, like just to constantly be neutral about these things and how it can actually help you to be extremely flourishing as, as the Stoics would say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the whole point of practicing virtue and I categorize non-judgment as a form of justice. Mm-hmm. I break down these character qualities really small. That way yeah. it, they're easier to practice. And when you practice things like non-judgment, you learn to be grateful and see the good in other people. So it's not mm-hmm. about having no opinion whatsoever, but it's about training your subconscious mind, training your mind to stop picking out flaws in people and instead see them for their good qualities, which actually adds to your to the flavor of life rather than just neutraling you out completely. Yeah, definitely. No, I think that's really important for, for people to realize because this is a philosophy obviously that can be uh, misinterpreted as something that really uh, turns us into kind of emotionless beings, uh, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and it's really not like that. And, and that's why it, it, you know, it's great to, you know, even have people like yourself in, you know, in, in the industry or in the, um, I don't know, the canon of, of stoic thinkers um, who, you know, are out there pushing it and saying, listen, guys, it's, it's actually about living an effective, happy life. Uh, you don't have to be this emotionless, you know, being and, and, and actually that being neutral uh, allows you to see the real picture, which is often quite more beautiful than what you had originally come up with in your mind, right? Mm -hmm, Definitely. And I think one of the things I teach my clients is in order to create happiness in your life, you have to be willing to let go of thoughts, feelings, and beliefs that don't serve you positively, regardless of what everyone else thinks Mm -hmm. or does. Because I think that's a thing too. We think, well, we have to take a side. We have to say what's right and wrong, right? But all that does is cause you negativity. Yeah. So would you rather hold on to that negativity or would you rather adopt a more neutral perspective that allows you to actually feel positively more Mm. and sometimes it's hard to get people to let go of that because they get really hung up on the principle of what's right wrong fair unfair yeah but i kind of teach people to just not look at that at all because what is fair right we can hold ourselves to the standard of positive character we can act with respect and fairness with other people but then we don't need to expect anyone else especially people who aren't practicing this wisdom right i remember Mm. when i first started really getting into stoicism, I was so judgmental of everyone else who wasn't acting with this wisdom, but it's like, what do you expect? If, if they don't have access to this wisdom, then you can't expect them to be different than they are. Yeah. And and look, even if they do have access to the wisdom, that's absolutely no guarantee that they're going to take it in. Right. (laughs) It's like, man, humans are just such complex creatures. And to imagine that you have any, any kind of control over, 
um, the way that they think, even though we, you know, we have partial control in the way that we act, but um, ultimate control, absolutely not. Like everybody is on their own trajectory and, and you, it's very hard to intervene and get them to go in a different direction. Um, but, but I was wondering if we could, if we could talk about uh, probably a, a pretty heavy topic, which is, you know, you talk about kind of uh, changing the story that you tell about other people being very neutral about uh, the way that other people live their lives. Uh, you know, especially in America, you'd know, there's, there seems to be a, you know, an increasingly growing movement of, uh, focusing on other people to change first before, before we change ourselves. Right. There really seems to be, uh, and I'm, I'm, I guess my, my ultimate question is how does a, how does somebody who's practicing a stoic lifestyle balance, uh, the need for internal personal change with also wanting to change the society as well. Like, because as I said, there is that movement of people who is just like, you know, you guys need to change. You guys need to change, which is, it seems to be really important that there's a, a movement of people within the society who speak up and say, this needs to change, right? Because for the good of everybody, but at mm-hmm. the same time, what is the level of responsibility and, and how, how would you approach social change as, as a stoic? Well, I think it comes down to leading by example. Again, we can't control Mm. anybody else. And if we're, we have two opposing sides, you know, in America, there's liberalism and conservatism, especially after um, our last election, there's Mm. a huge division and it's Mm. like, we're both barking at each other to change, but it's not doing anything. Yeah. And so I think it comes down to, as a stoic, I would lead by example. I would hold myself to the standard of positive character. Um, but I guess that's kind of a non-interventionist, <laughs> which that's mm-hmm. kind of my personality. I'm, I'm not a conflict-oriented person. And I think there's always the argument, you know, when it comes to change, is there a place for anger? Do we need mm-hmm. anger to motivate us to do something? Mm-hmm. And my opinion is no. I think we can pursue other avenues like the pursuit for justice or the pursuit for fairness. And that involves treating the other side with respect, even if we don't agree mm. with them. Yeah, no, I, I, I do agree. It's, it's just, it's such an interesting discussion, especially today, you know, we just see such a massive divide. Um, and, you know, I, I tend to lean towards the opinion that uh, the best possible thing that you can do within your community or your society uh, if you want to see positive changes to become the strongest version of yourself that you can be and to lead by example in society and, and show people how to live a good life and how to live a fair, just life, right? Um, how to treat people kindly. Um, and, you know, I, I think, I think we, I think we can pretty safely call upon many examples in history of people who did exactly that people who, didn't focus on what other people were doing, but just focused on what they could bring to their society. Um, and, and as they did that and as they flourished and as they came into public view, simply by being the absolute best of what they did, uh, you know, people started to see that, that maybe the way that they were living or the way that they would have liked the country to, to live, uh, was a better way to go. I, Mm -hmm. I feel like you change the hearts and minds of people by, by being a strong, uh, courageous, just, you know, like, like all these, all these virtues, like you, you, you change people's minds by being the best version of yourself that you can be so that they can't even call you out on anything. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the Stoics actually talked about that a lot in terms of, you know, changing yourself first and then, you know, then you can worry about other people, but unless you're the most virtuous, perfect version of yourself that you can be, um, can, can you kind of speak to that? Like, like developing yourself to such a point, like how do, how do you deal with your clients when it comes to like setting their own version of what their best self is? Like what's the importance there of aiming at something high while you're living in a society uh, like America? So I think I tackle positive character from a little bit of a different perspective. I don't know if the Stoics mm-hmm. would tisk tisk me. Maybe Seneca would be okay with it since he was a little bit more <laughs> progressive. But you know, the Stoics taught that virtue is good for its own sake. So we shouldn't mm-hmm. subserve virtue to the pleasures that come about from virtue. But I teach mm-hmm. people to look at it from a more self-serving nature. Because I think when you think virtue, you think, oh, it's about being a good person. You know, people have their own ideas of what being a good person is. But when you tell someone that, you know, the reason why you shouldn't practice indiscretion, which is a form of foolishness, is because think about how many times you talk negatively about someone or you complain or you vent and then you feel bad about it later or you Mm -hmm. worry that they're going to find out about it. Mm -hmm. So the next time you want to do it, have discretion, have wisdom, know when it's your place to say something or not. And so when it comes to, you know, having a sense of excellence, in yourself, I kind of teach it from a more self-serving nature. Obviously, society benefits, other people benefit when we act with patience and when we act with these other character qualities. But I think to get people to change, you kind of have to spin it to this is going to benefit you. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's pretty spot on. I, but but I also think that I mean, if you if you look at the results of virtue. Uh, what comes about as a result of you actually aiming at a virtuous life. Uh, It's the best case scenario for you. And it's also the best case scenario for your family, your society, your country. Uh, And, and all you have to do is just do a very simple, you know, mind game and ask the question, if every single person aimed at these virtues, if every single person was trying to be courageous, just, you know, temperate and, 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 and wise, uh, Man, how much better would society be, you know, and, and, and you don't have to think for long to imagine that, yeah, aiming at virtue is, is probably the best good that we can, that we can try to aim at. And even though the results of virtue, you know, like that's the virtue is its own reward. Uh, you know, it's just by, I mean, just by virtue of the fact that it is its own reward means that it is very self-serving because by following virtue, you will feel better. You'll act better. You'll be a stronger member of your community. Um, and, and I was wondering if we could, we could possibly delve a little bit deeper into kind of your, I know with your program, you kind of have like eight principles that you talk about mm-hmm. that can help people to move closer to a stoic life or move closer to virtue. Uh, can you kind of talk through those with us and, 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 you know, obviously you've got your own, your own um, uh, spin on things. And, and, and if there's some that you don't want to share, cause you want to keep that for your program. Absolutely. But um, whatever you want to share, I'd love to hear about, about the eight principles that you teach. Yeah, of course. So I call these eight principles, the eight universal laws of peace and happiness. Mm-hmm. And I pitch them as their laws of nature that, there's no other result than to create happiness. And I tell people that you were formed by nature to be happy, but you have to Mm -hmm. align yourself with nature by understanding things like what's within your control, understanding how to control your judgments, things like that. 
So the first one I teach is, um, I call it the law of reality, which is about how your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs create your reality. And you have the ability to change that reality by changing your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. And so I teach people how the subconscious mind works, mm-hmm. how we've all been influenced to think, feel, and act in certain ways based on genetics, the way the things we learned growing up, the way that society has influenced us. And we have to take control and understand what's actually going on underneath, beneath the surface. For example, when I mm. got angry, when people wouldn't wave hello to me, it was because I had this belief that if someone didn't do what I wanted them to, then that was rude or disrespectful. So yeah. that's the law of reality. And then moving into law of control, which is all about the dichotomy of control. And it's so profoundly simple, but that tends to create the most profound shifts for mm. people when they realize that 90% of the things they're worrying about, they actually don't have control over. Mm. Yeah. So we go through that. And then the next one, the universal law of happiness. Uh, so happiness is a constant state of peace and contentment, not determined by your external circumstances. And then moving into positive character, or do you want to? Yeah. Can we touch on that for a second? Yeah. Um, okay. So if somebody is trying to understand this and they're, they're hearing this, you know, like life is about being happy <clears throat> and that you can just be purely happy despite your circumstances. <clears throat> Sorry. I think there's, I think there's a lot of validity to that. Uh, how do you get somebody to, how do you get somebody to see that who's in such a rut? You know, because mm-hmm. because there there is also the argument to be made that life isn't necessarily about happiness. It's about it's about uh, you know taking on the responsibility of of dealing with whatever crap you have to deal with in your life, right? Like because because there are so many people who deal with so many harsh situations, so many people who are you know really as we might say like you know th- their fate has not dealt them well, mm-hmm. um, and so in those moments how would you encourage somebody who is going through something traumatic or something absolutely devastating uh, to, to be able to step outside of that reality and, and see how they can move forward with a a positive character. Mm -hmm. So the way that I teach happiness, I think a lot of what's out there is about adding more good things to your life Mm that I teach it as happiness comes from transforming the way you respond to all the challenges. Mm. Because if we keep adding more good things, but then we never change the way that we respond to all these things outside of our control, then we're going to be on a roller coaster of happiness. It's not going to be mm. true happiness. And so all these principles kind of interconnect, they all build upon one another. And so when I teach happiness, and of course it sounds cliche to say it's, you know, not determined by your external circumstances, but I use mm. logic and I walk people through examples and I like to create what I call fake math equations mm-hmm. where I create these equations that just help things click in people's brains where it's like, you know, nature would not have made anything outside of your control necessary for your happiness. That's what I believe. And I think that's the stoic mm. belief. And so it doesn't matter what situation you're born into. It doesn't matter if you fall ill, if terrible things happen to you. And yes, that's hard to get someone to understand, but at least giving them a different perspective. Cause I think all of what's out there the outside of stoicism is like, well, you at least need loving relationships and you at least need mm. good connections with your family and you at least need your health. But then that's kind of resigning anybody who doesn't have those things. You're condemning them to unhappiness. And so uh, trying to look at it from a different perspective, I think, can be healing for people who have Mm. these unavoidable circumstances. And of course, one of the laws I teach is adversity, which is all about, you know, we always look in hindsight and we see we go through a difficult challenge. And years later, after struggling and fighting it, we look back and we're like, okay, well, 
you know, I did that too. I, I obviously struggled for over 20 years and I blamed mm. my circumstances on other people and it wasn't fair that I went through all this, but then this became my greatest asset. Mm. And so if we always know that a positive lesson is going to come, then why can't we approach a challenge when we're in it with foresight and mm. say, this is terrible. And I prefer that I don't have to go through this, but what could be the potential lesson that's coming? And it's just utilizing this wisdom in ways that gives us more options of how to respond rather than just condemning ourselves to unhappiness based on what most people believe is necessary for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's a, it's a really important thought there as well. Uh, you, you kind of reminded me of a quote, I think from Mark Twain, he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an old man who's known many troubles, uh, most of which never happened. Right. And, you know, when you're talking about kind of looking in hindsight back at these troubles that we'll deal with um, and the terrible things that happen to some people, I think if, if anyone were to do this, to look back in their life and, and take a list of like every single trouble that they've ever dealt with, every horrible situation that, that they thought would ruin them. Uh, firstly, I think they'd probably realize that 80 to 90% of them, they never think about anymore. Uh, and then they'd probably realize that, you know, maybe there's a good proportion of, of, of those events that actually led them to a different direction or, or maybe made them stronger. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of an interesting exercise, right? Like taking a look at all of the things that you have dealt with, uh, and, and it can kind of go to the quote from Marcus Aurelius, where he says that, you know, you will face today with the same reasoning capacity that you faced yesterday and the day before. Uh, and so maybe when you're dealing with something right now, uh, you can take a step back and say, well, five years from now, will I have forgotten this? If I will, what sort of level of uh, importance am I going to put on it right now? Like how, how should I deal with it right now? Like, can I actually almost put myself in the future and try to get myself into the state that I would be in then looking back? Uh, while I'm going through this. Is that very similar to kind of how you work with your clients trying to get them to understand logically that, I mean, really, if you think about it, this trouble that you're going through right now, even though it seems very, very real right now in the future will look kind of silly. Yeah. So definitely that's an exercise I do with people, mainly mm. having them look at past adversities that they had been to been through mm. and then what lessons they learned from it. How did they grow as a person to get their wheels turning on, you know, this situation is really bad, but how can I, like what potential lesson might be coming? What character quality is being strengthened mm. through this? I, it's funny when um, I tell people in my program that oftentimes the universe likes to test us because mm -hmm. <laughs> time and time again, I, I had one student who, when we did the week on adversity, he said that he had had the most adverse week that he had had in years. Mm -hmm. And he's like, everything is going wrong. And mm -hmm. he said, if, if I had been through this before I took this program, I probably would have left the country mm -hmm. because I couldn't process and I couldn't see that these challenges are leading to opportunities. And so it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, I like to tell people they're being tested in that way. But yeah, that's definitely a, an exercise mm -hmm. I do just because, again, we're just giving people more options of how to respond beyond the this is terrible and I'm not going to make it through it. Yeah. How else can you look at it based on having insights from, that you can take from your past? You always know a positive lesson's coming. So you mm. can have hope and, and allow yourself to believe that a positive lesson is coming in the future. 
Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's really important for people to realize and, and what you said there about understanding that it's going to come and so you can learn from it. Um, you know, I think this is why I often kind of like to refer to myself as a student of life, right? Because it's like life will teach you the best lessons if you're actually there listening, waiting to get those lessons. And if you focus, and, and, I, and I, th- I think that that's a lot of the message that, that, that Stoicism encourages to do. It's, it's like, pay attention, you know, focus. If you focus and you pay attention and if you let go of the unimportant things, but you focus on what you can control, uh, you will see things that are necessary for you to grow. And I mean, in, in a way that's almost, um, you know, analogous to the idea of aligning with nature. It's like, uh, you know, quiet yourself to such a point that you can actually see what life is trying to teach you. You can Mm -hmm. see that this adversity could be good for you if you'll just stop believing the stories that you tell yourself just for a moment, just step outside yourself for a moment. But I want to let you continue because, so we've gone through the dichotomy of control. We've gone through Mm -hmm. adversity. I want to let you continue with uh, um, your, your kind of principles that you teach people. Sure. So in conjunction with the law of happiness, obviously Mm. positive character is tied into that since as we know, the Stoics believe virtue was the only good and the only thing necessary for happiness. But again, when, you know, when I first started studying virtue, I looked at the cardinal virtues and I thought, okay, wisdom, I feel pretty smart, but I don't have a lot of age or life experience, right? I'm Mm -hmm. 22 years old. Mm -hmm. So can I actually be wise? Are there situations where I can actually practice courage and not in the armed forces and not doing anything valiant? And then on the flip side with the vices, I thought, well, I don't think I'm very foolish, right? I try not to, you know, I try to speak well and know what mm. I'm talking about. But I had this very surface level understanding of virtue and vice because I think those cardinal virtues, they're so lofty. Mm. And I thought, well, if this is the thing that's necessary for happiness, but I'm very unhappy, then clearly I'm not practicing virtue, even though I think maybe I'm doing an okay job at it. And so I started collecting just information on all of the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that led me to experience unpleasantness. So mm. I mentioned, you know, gossiping about other people. It's not something that I liked about myself. It was an impulsive thing. My anger, my procrastination that tended to cause me to wait to the last minute and then worry about things. And so I started trying to piece these in underneath the character qualities and try to fit them in and see, okay, you know, what, what falls underneath wisdom, what falls underneath courage, things like rumination. Rumination is something a lot of people, a lot of us struggle with, you know, getting stuck in uh, overthinking and dwelling in the Mm. past. Well, I started categorizing rumination under a form of cowardice because Mm. it's a fear of moving on. You can't get over the situation because you, it's almost like you're afraid of moving on. Whereas the antidote, which is the virtue that falls under courage is acceptance. Mm. And so what I did is I created like over 20 different mini character qualities that give you a blueprint for how to think, feel, and act in any circumstance. So when you find yourself ruminating, you know, that's what you're doing. And you know that the only way to get out of that is to find acceptance and say, I'm going to choose not to think about this anymore. Hmm. You can effectively train yourself to overcome these different unpleasant, I call them unpleasant states. I don't like to say vices because that kind of sounds like they're a part of who you are. I think that these are Hmm. states we can go in and out of. And you practice the character qualities until the quality of having acceptance, which is a form of courage, is it becomes part of who you are. Mm, 
Yeah. No, I think that's, that's a really helpful way to look at it. And, and I, I think that you've done something really cool there because uh, looking at these, you know, four major virtue groups, uh, the cardinal virtues, it can be confusing for a lot of people to look at them and think, oh, how does that encompass everything that I think and feel or would like to be? Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's a great idea to kind of break it down into those, those antidotes, as you say. Um, I, I'd, I'd really like to know, like, do you have specific daily habits that you use uh, with your stoicism or do you kind of see it as more of a slow grind over time and changing your mind so that, uh, you know, you're kind of always in this state? Yeah. So I feel like I'm to the point where I fully internalized. So mm. I don't feel like unless there's a rare case where I'm experiencing a really tough challenge, I don't feel like I ever have to talk myself out. It's like these principles have become, I feel them in my bones. It's like, I don't, mm. I don't make a judgment about someone and then need to tell myself, oh, I shouldn't judge them or I don't ruminate and then have to find acceptance. It's just, that's my natural mode of operation through yeah. doing this work for six years. But obviously six years is a long time mm -hmm. to wait for someone to see those changes. And I think a lot of people who study stoicism, it can be frustrating because you know mm. the principles, you believe them, and but you still see yourself reacting negatively. You still worry about things outside of your control and then have to change your response after. And mm. so that's exactly why I created this program and I do a, a unique thing with it. So in order to help people get there much faster so they don't have to spend six years internalizing these things. So what I do is I break this wisdom down logically. So your brain accepts the argument. Instead of just saying, oh, don't worry about that, it's outside of your control, you gotta give people an argument that they can believe. Kind of like yeah. if you were having an argument with someone, you wouldn't just say, this is my argument. You would say, this is why you should believe my argument. So that's what I do when I break this wisdom down. And then I make audio recordings that reinforce the wisdom at the subconscious level. It's kind of like if you've ever used personal affirmations or things like that uh, to give yourself a positive boost, well, I do that with this wisdom. And so what people mm. experience, you know, after a couple of days, they'll notice, whoa, I usually get really upset by that. And I just had a much more neutral response. And because I think that's the challenge, it's making conscious changes where you're reacting negatively and then changing your response after what you're doing is you're creating a new memory for your subconscious mind to pull from the next time that it goes to react to a situation. That's a very slow process. But instead, if you can you can actually retrain the subconscious mind by giving it the commands that you want it to do. It listens, but you have to tell it what you want it to do. And so um, that's been kind of a magical part of the process. Because again, it can be really frustrating when you're constantly having to talk yourself down after a situation. Well, what if you could train yourself just not to react in the first place? And it's not that you're becoming a mindless zombie. It's that you understand the logic consciously. So when you're going throughout the day, you can change your response, but then over time, you're just internalizing a lot faster where it just becomes second nature to you. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, th I think that's a really important point because it, honestly, I think that it, it, one of the brilliant things about this philosophy is that it really does make a lot of sense, right? It's, it's a, it's a very uh, intuitive kind of philosophy. When you hear the arguments that Seneca or Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus made about the way that we should live our lives, they were very logical. And that's because that was one of the, uh, you know, the core tenets of Stoicism is that we should be studying logic so that we can actually understand how to live a good life. 
and and so what's really cool is you know you see this in people even you know with with some of my clients you know I've I've had these moments where they bring up something that they deal with that they're dealing with and and I kind of break it down for them as you say in a very logical way and say well you know sure you think about that now um, but maybe try to think about this and here's here's why you should think about this uh, and then it's almost like yeah it's like just clicks in the head right mm-hmm. immediately they they're like yeah wow why would I ever think anything else like why why would anything ever and and it seems like we've we've been hardwired in a different way um there's something to that right there's something to this uh, you know us being hardwired in from a young age to think in a different way man like what is that like what what is that that hardwired wiring that we receive whether it's from our you know culture our families whether it's from our biology because that that's something that i'm very interested in i i kind of break it down into nature culture and philosophy like nature is what creates us so that's our biology um you know culture is kind of what shapes us in a way um and then philosophy is what can guide us right so so it's like once you've been formed into this human being then we get into philosophy in order to help us to maybe break all of that and try to bring in some new perspectives. But man, when somebody is so ingrained from a young age to think in these ways, I guess, I guess what is your biggest technique for, for like helping? So, but okay. Okay. I'm going to rephrase this because now that I think about it, that's kind of a, an interesting question on its own how do you get somebody who hasn't already come to you? Right? Like, because when people come to you, they're already in that state of mind, right? Where they're willing to change. They, they know that something's wrong. Let's say you're dealing with somebody in your life who you can just see, you can see that they're in pain constantly. You can see that they're not living a life that is alignment with anything that resembles nature, right? They're just constantly angry, uh, bitter gossiping, um, how do you even begin if you do to try and help them? Yeah. So I think, you know, the work with the subconscious mind, I I kind of, so I have my program and then I, I'm also always advocating about understanding your subconscious mind because when, Hmm. you know, maybe someone's not ready to make the change, but when you tell someone that there's not anything broken about you, okay. Cause Hmm. a lot of people, they have all these reactions and then they think that I'm just stuck this way or there's something wrong with me because I'm always criticizing other people. I had a student who constantly judged people and she felt horrible about it. But then you talk to her and I can speak to, you said, where does this ingraining come from? I, I'm actually a certified hypnotherapist. And so mm-hmm. I've learned a lot about where this programming comes from and tracing back to it when from a young age, her family constantly criticized other people. And so it's like, as a child, because up until the age of seven or eight, you don't really have a frame of reference for what's right or wrong or abnormal, normal. So you're just kind of absorbing everything. Hmm. And then around seven or eight, something called the critical mind forms. And that's when you start making judgments about what's right or wrong, or that's normal, or I'm used to this, or I'm not used to this. And so we're not only programmed until we're seven or eight, but a lot of that programming comes before then. So if you're just picking up behaviors, if you have a parent that sees everything pessimistically, then you just learn to view that that's the right way of viewing the world. Hmm. And so I like to you know, to answer your question about how do you get someone to see, I think the first step is just teaching them there's nothing broken about them. 
There's mm. nothing wrong with you that if I had believed that I was just broken with my anxiety and depression, I would have never changed. Right. But something stoicism gave me hope that I could change. And so um, I think more education on what the subconscious mind is, how it's choosing your emotions before you're even consciously aware of it. Mm. Right? That explains a lot. So when you see yourself acting in anger, acting in ways that aren't becoming of the person that you want to be, usually what you do is you act in a negative way and then you feel shame about it. And then you have that inner critic voice that says, why did you say that? You're a horrible person. And it just gets into this cycle of making yourself feel terrible and never making any change. But if you can learn that these things have been programmed into you mm. and you have the ability to change that programming, then I think that there's hope for even the people who seem to struggle the most. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. No, I think that that's, that's really speaks to what's happening because it is, it is programming, right? There's so many ways that we're programmed. I, I like to think of it as, you know, you kind of go through life and then all of a sudden you're 20 and you realize that you're not actually you, your, your parents' views, your, your teacher's views, your religious leader's views. Your, everybody has kind of uh, put their own little ideas into the box called, this is what we want you to be, right? And mm -hmm. it's your job then to kind of open up the box and be like, well, you know, what do I want to keep? What do I want to throw away? Um, and how can I actually be, you know, intentional about the way that I live my life? Um, and, and I love that. I think, and I think that uh, you're a great example of this, right? You lived so long uh, having these negative thought patterns, these negative uh, programming uh, in, in, in your mind and, and you kind of were able to see can you talk, I actually want to go right back to the start. And then I've got other questions that don't even relate to any of this. Um, right back to the start, when you had that moment, when you understood that this could be helpful to you, mm -hmm. you were so ingrained, obviously, like in, in that programming. But what did that moment look like when you understood that you don't actually have to go you know, through, you don't have to go through with that program. You can change it. Like if there was a moment, if, if, if you can't remember it, that's fine. But was there a moment where you, act, it just clicked? Yeah. I think the first instance of that was when, you know, in Hellenistic philosophy, hearing from stoicism that you can't mm. control your external circumstances, but you can control the way that you respond. Yeah. I think that was the first time where I was kind of like, huh? Like <laughs> I can't control my thoughts and emotions. That's not mm. true. But then obviously, you know, if it's me up against an ancient philosophy, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm the one that's wrong, right? Um, yeah. But I think that's an interesting question because I often wonder what it is that kept driving me forward because there are so many times where I wasn't seeing change and I was mm. like, why am I even trying this? Why am I spending all this time, you know, every time I would experience a negative emotion, I would make a tally mark and like show myself visually like how often I was experiencing these things and it was just exhausting and my belief from a more spiritual perspective is that it was kind of this is my purpose is to have gone through these challenges so then I can help other people who have similar challenges work through it hmm. so I don't know that it was a time where I, something clicked and I was like all right full steam ahead I think it was just slowly something within me that I couldn't quite explain was driving me forward to continue trying to see that there was hope Mm. Yeah. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And, and I actually wanted to take a bit of a detour um, and just ask who's your favorite stoic and why? 
Ooh, that's a good one. I think, you know, I think I read meditations more than anything over and over. Mm-hmm. I tend to like Seneca because, you know, when I first started learning about virtue and the original Stoics, it was kind of like, I remember my philosophy professor used the metaphor with virtue. It's kind of like, it doesn't matter if you're a foot below the surface of the water or a mile below the surface of the water, you'll still drown. Mm. So unless you're the perfect virtuous sage, there's, you're not going to be happy. Basically mm-hmm. it was kind of an all or nothing type attitude. Whereas Seneca was one of the first where I, you know, I internalized, I think he says in one of his dialogues and essays that he knows he's not perfect, but mm. if he can make progress toward virtue every day, then that's a successful day. And so I think that really helped me as I, you know, I felt a lot of guilt when I was changing myself. I looked at how I had treated other people in the past, how negative I was and how draining I probably was for everyone around me. And if I had just believed that, you know, I'm not per- perfectly virtuous, so there's no point in trying, then I wouldn't have tried to change myself. And so I think he really inspired me to accept my faults and realize maybe I was someone else's adversity during those mm. times that helped them grow into a stronger person and just continue incrementally pressing forward. Hmm. No, I, I, I agree. I, th- I think that uh, Seneca really gave us a great example of somebody who was genuinely wrestling with these ideas and, mm-hmm. and trying to, uh, you know, I guess reconcile the fact that he was in a position where he, you know, there was a lot of scandal involved and, you know, like he, he, he did have a very interesting life. Uh, but, you know, he was genuinely trying to be the best version of himself that he could be. And, Something you said there is very, very important, uh, talking about the, you know, how achievable it is to get to this perfect state. And I, I actually think that it's very important for people to, to kind of um, understand that, uh, look, it, it is, it's not going to be exactly easy. And, and, and if it was easy, then it wouldn't even be worth it, right? It's like, like to, to, to achieve uh, pure virtue is something that, I don't know if anybody has even ever been able to achieve that perfect, like the way that they describe it is, you know, to act virtuously and also not for the wrong reasons, but for the right reasons. So never even conceiving of doing anything unvirtuous. Mm -hmm. And I did an episode on the practical Stoic bites podcast uh, that basically talks about uh, Marcus Aurelius when he's talking about his mother, he said that, she was, you know, she, she never did wrong and she didn't even conceive of doing wrong. And that's what he was aiming at. He wanted to be like that. And I kind of, like you do, like breaking it down logically, I kind of said to people in this episode, like, listen, just because it seems in practice to be impossible to not only not do wrong, but to not even consider doing wrong, does that mean that we don't aim at that? right? Because 50% of being perfect is always going to be better than not trying in the first place. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and, and so can you kind of speak to that as well? Like this, we have to kind of accept ourselves, right? We need to accept that we're not always going to be perfect and accept that, uh, you know, perfection is kind of an unattainable goal, but on the road to perfection, that's where we really find the, uh, at least the best version of ourselves that we can be. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, again, one of the challenges with virtue is these things are so big and lofty, Mm. right? 
And so unless we categorize some of these smaller character qualities under virtue, it's going to be difficult to understand how to actually practice those things. Mm. We tend to think like one of the qualities I teach is um, envy is a form of injustice because you're, you know, coveting something that's not yours, whereas goodwill is a form of justice. So a lot of people will say, well, I'm just an envious person. That's who I am. But if you don't like feeling envy because it makes you feel not great when you are jealous of other people and then you feel guilty about thinking badly about a friend because you're jealous, then you can practice the opposite, which is goodwill. You can hmm. show that you are happy for your friend's accomplishments. So again, I think there's a fine line between, I don't think being perfectly virtuous is possible, as you said, but I also think you know, getting out of that mindset of I'm set in stone, right? I'm just a jealous person, or I'm mm. just, uh, I'm just a procrastinator. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, the way that you overcome procrastination is by having self-discipline. It's an antidote to that. Yeah. So if, if you feel like you struggle with uh, understanding what virtue is, try thinking about these things in smaller ways. Notice what things tend to cause you unpleasant thoughts or feelings or unpleasant things to happen in your life. And then start tackling those things one at a time. And then when you make small progress, you start seeing that it's working. Like for me, when I realized I didn't experience anger for a long time, that gave me the confidence to continue moving forward. But if I had just tried to be just or tried to be courageous, what would that mean? Yeah. I had to do it in the small actions. And so I think that can be helpful for anybody who struggles to try to reach that state of virtue. That yeah. it seems so unattainable. Definitely. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good point. And, you know, just breaking it down to its core elements of this is exactly the path that you should take. But um, yeah, Kayla, I think that that's a, that's a beautiful place to kind of leave the audience with and, you know, really just to focus on uh, specifically trying to, uh, you know, find ways that they can bring virtue into their life and thinking about, as you say, the, you know, these breaking it down into the core elements of each of the main virtues uh, but I want to give you the opportunity to tell us about, you know, where people can find you and also, you know, if there's anything you want to share with the audience before we, before we head off. Sure. Yeah. So the best way to connect with me is just by going to my website, kaylatroutwine.com, which it's hard to spell, but hopefully we can leave a link somewhere. Yeah. We'll have links in the show notes. Definitely. Perfect. Yeah. So feel free to check out information about my eight week program and just reach out. If there's anything you have challenges about, I'd love to just have a chance to talk to you and see whether there's anything I can help with. Great. I love it. So thank you so much for coming on and we'd love to have you back as many times as possible. All right. So there you have it. My interview with Kayla Troutwine. Now, uh, I'm sure you agree so much value in that interview. She's such a lovely person. We're going to have her back. Make sure you head to the links in the show notes and make sure you reach out to her. Let her know how much you appreciate her coming on the show. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed that episode and I'll talk to you next time. But until then, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J. E. Drew. See you next time.